nine days ago, Florida Atlantic had literally never won an NCAA tournament game, but now they're on their way to the final four. What? You are locked on college basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up? Welcome into the Locked On College Basketball Podcast, the only daily national college hoop show out there. We have half of the final four set following Saturday night's action, a thrilling game and a less thrilling game. Uh, We're going to get into both of those. We're going to get you set for Sunday's action, afternoon action. Don't forget, don't get caught thinking it's a nighttime game. But we want to start with the Florida Atlantic Owls. Hootie who is right, Andy Patton. And uh, we're going to talk about this one, unpack it first. This game in Madison Square Garden where Marquise Noel once again absolutely went off, but it was not enough. And Florida Atlantic able to pull it off down the stretch with a three-point victory. Listen, the East Regional there in Madison Square Garden, it lived up to every hope and expectation we had for it, Andy. How on earth are these Owls dancing? Yeah, it's, Florida Atlantic's been such an interesting team because, hey, they're 19 in the Final Four, which is awesome. We love that. We love underdogs. We love seeing teams like this succeed. But I, I feel like for – I mean, it's not, it's a nine seed. It's not what St. Peter's did. You know, it's not, not what Princeton was doing. Nine seed's less – exciting i suppose but i think that this team kind of flew under the radar because they i mean they barely beat memphis it was an eight nine game that came down to the final seconds which is kind of what you expect and kind um, of some referee help <laughs> yes and a little bit of officiating help there and penny hardaway chucking water bottles that was kind of the main story <laughs> that came out of that game uh, and then they don't have to play a one seed they of course play fairly Dickinson. They beat them as you would kind of expect this team to do. And so there wasn't really a lot of buzz about them being a sweet 16 team. It kind of felt like, Oh, whichever of Memphis or Florida Atlantic was going to be a sweet 16 team regardless. And then maybe Tennessee. Mm. Then, then it was like, okay, maybe Dusty May's team deserves some love and kind of coming into this game. There was a lot of conversation about, Hey, like look at Ken Palm. Like this is not a six seed underdog the way that it is, you know, portrayed when you look at a three seed of Kansas state and a nine seed for Florida Atlanta, like that's not really what this matchup is. And I'm, I'm sure there are people who are, are a bit more casual watching college basketball who only tuned in for the elite eight, or maybe only turned in for the sweet 16 who thought that this is some like really plucky underdog team. And really, I mean, if we're being honest, what this team is, is a team that just got misseeded by the committee. That's all. This, this team is better than a nine seed. I don't think there's any debate about that. And they would have been better than a nine seed had they not beat Kansas State. But they did. They did. They defeated the Wildcats. They are now going to the final four. They will take on either a six-seeded Creighton team or a five-seeded San Diego State team with a very legitimate chance to play for a national championship. This is an extraordinary story. And they did it because of elite outside shooting. They shot 39% from deep in this game. They did a good job defensively on Kansas State. They didn't really slow down Marquise Noel all that much, although he was 8 of 21. Yeah, he was so, inefficient, yeah. very much he so. He wasn't super efficient in this game. 5 of 11 from deep, which is pretty solid. He had his 12 assists. He had five steals. Still a monstrous game for Marquise Noel because that is who he was in this NCAA tournament. But at the end of the day, you know, Vlad Golden had a monster game for four <laughs> down low, 14 points, 13 boards, pair of assists for him. Uh, and the Owls are dancing. And they're, I mean, this is an extraordinary story. And they deserve so much love and praise for getting to this spot because, I mean, 
like you said, nine days ago, they didn't had never won an NCAA tournament game. Now they're in the final four. A lot of teams have never, ever made the final four. And here they are. That's one of the, why this sport and why this tournament is so great. It can literally change the trajectory of the history of your basketball program mm. in a week and a half. Like that, that is mind boggling to me. Uh, our Andy, our, you and I had been talking about this earlier. Our friend Lucas Harkins, who yeah. does great work, a, a bracketologist we have had on the show, in fact, uh, tweeted this out. Like, as we talk about, like, I think I said something earlier in the day about, like, this is not your grandpa's Cinderella team. Or right. whatever. He said, FAU ranked higher in the net, the NCAA's <laughs> metric, and Ken Palm leading into the NCAA tournament. They ranked higher than Miami. Virginia, Kentucky, TCU, Indiana, Michigan State, Northwestern, and Missouri. So sure, to the casual Johnny Q sports fan, this might be crazily shocking, but it shouldn't be. If you're dialed in at all, this team is super legit. They came into the game ranked above Kansas State at Mm -hmm. Ken Palm, and they showed why. Like this team just knows how to win and they've been winning all season and they've continued to win uh, four games now in March. And Andy, and another thing that really stuck out to me was their offensive rebounding. Like uh, what were, what were the numbers? Let me look back at it. 40, 14. 14 offensive rebounds mm-hmm. to Kansas state's five offensive rebounds uh, in total literally doubled up. Kansas State on the glass, 44 to 22. And I know rebounding isn't everything, but the mm-hmm. offensive rebounds in particular, like that offensive rebound they got off of uh, the fr- the front end miss of a one and one in the final couple minutes, yeah. that was a massive, massive turning point in this game and, and a great thing for Dusty May's club to help close it out. But Kansas State wasn't going away. This was an electric ending, Andy. So fun to watch. Uh, didn't get the overtime that we got in Kansas State's last game, but still was so fun. And, and until the final moments uh, wasn't over. And unfortunately for Kansas State, they I, I really thought um, that FAU was going to foul up three. They didn't, but Kansas State couldn't even get a shot off. Um, for some reason, Marquise Noel gave it up to Ishmael. Yeah, and... In a, in real time, I was like, okay, I get that. Ishmael had a great shooting game uh, again in their other game, but how did he do? Let me look back at his stat line in this one. One of two from three, so I mean, fine, whatever. But yeah, I was really surprised Noel didn't hang on to this, and he had hit some deep threes in this game in critical moments. And Andy, I want uh, and just one other moment I want to mention is Elijah Martin's dunk early in the game. This yeah. dude is 6'2", going up over 6'9", Gasson from Kansas State, just yamming on him. And, I mean, he does a bunch of other stuff, too, like uh, 3 of 7 from 3, 6 of 11 from the field, 17 points, and it, it was phenomenal. Phenomenal performance. Andy, is there anything else to be said about Marquise Noel, or do we just continue to marvel at the ridiculousness of what he's done? I think we can marvel at Kansas State a little bit in general. Certainly Marquise Noel obviously playing a significant factor in that. But for Jerome Tang to be in this position, to be a team that was picked to be nearly last in the Big 12, if not last, I'm not sure. I think they were picked. It was dead last, 10th. Picked to finish last in the Big 12, have virtually no players returning. Everybody on their team is a transfer, pretty much. And for them to have built this roster, built this culture, you know, we talked on a recent show about the the relationship between Noel and Keontae Johnson and how seemingly compatible they were as teammates, how quickly they kind of gelled. And 
it, yeah, some of that is Noel and some of that's Johnson, but a lot of that is the coach too. And I think that the job that Tang did to get this team assimilated together, to get them to play at this level. Yeah, I think people are going to look at a three seed losing to a nine seed and see this as some kind of disappointment. And if you think that Kansas State season was disappointing, I have news for you. <laughs> this is, yeah, it's a crappy ending. But yep. for this team to start in November where they were and where they were projected to be, for them to end up here is nothing short of extraordinary. And I can promise you that every other team in the Big 12 is looking at Kansas State and using language that I'm not going to say on the podcast, but they're thinking, oh, crap. Because if Jerome Tang continues to start getting the guys that he wants, gets more transfers, gets more attention in the portal from people who are like, hey, I want to go play for that coach on that team in that conference, I think Kansas State is going to build something really, really special here. And that'd be fun, too, when you think about what's going on in Lawrence, like to have both Kansas schools doing that well. Jerome Tang, man, he just has a special energy and I, like, I don't know about you, Andy, I'm kind of, I'm here for it. I'm kind of a sucker for, for uh, this energy and what he does. And yeah. so um, yeah. just really neat stuff there. And speaking of Keontae Johnson, you hate kind of his game today mm-hmm. went kind of the same way Drew Timmy's did, which we're yeah. about to talk about where foul trouble kind of rendered him yeah. uh, not much of a factor. And, and you hate to see his season in that way as we did Drew Timmy's. Yeah. Isaac, you kind of obliterated Gonzaga. I mean, they just took them to task in this one, especially in the second half. They're advancing to their first Final Four under coach Dan Hurley. What happened to the Zags? And also, can the UConn Huskies win this whole thing? We're going to talk about that. But first, today's episode of Locked on College Basketball is brought to you by Built Bar. The Built Bar March Madness bracket is here, and we know that you all have a favorite bar or puff, and now is the time to make it count. Go to BuiltMarchMadness.com to vote for your favorites. You know that I'm going to be voting for the Churro Bar. I know Isaac's going to be voting for the Churro Bar as well. Yeah, I am. (laughs) And if you want your favorite team to win, then you'll be voting for that bar too. Support your team, support your bar or puff. And when you vote for your favorite bar or puff, you will be entered into a drawing where 50 lucky Locked On listeners will get a free box of Built. Not only that, but one Locked On fan will get a 12-month subscription to Built for to get their best bars and puffs delivered monthly straight to your door. You've got to try Built, the best protein bar ever. Seriously, they are so amazing. You won't think they're good for you. What makes Built bars and puffs so good? Well, for starters, they're high in protein, they're low in sugar, and they're covered in 100% real chocolate. That's right, real chocolate. So run to BuiltMarchMadness.com right now to vote for your favorite bar or puff and pick up a box while you're there. You can vote every day in March, so hop in and support your pick. Built Bar a proud sponsor of the Locked On Network. All right, Isaac, this was a rough one for the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Great, <laughs> phenomenal game for UConn. Shout out to the Huskies. Shout out to Dan Hurley, a team that has just absolutely crushed every single team that they have faced in the NCAA tournament. They blasted Rick Pitino and Iona. They beat St. Mary's in the second round. Part of that was an injury to Alex Dukas, but I think they outscored him by 15 or 18 in the second half, something along those lines. Uh, of course, uh, now they, they take on this Gonzaga team and just, I mean, just take care of business here. And, and you mentioned the Drew Timmy thing. You kind of mentioned the, the the aspect of that with the Keontae Johnson, how similar it was. And, and yes, Drew Timmy picking up third and fourth fouls late in the first half, early in the second half, really devastating for him and for the Zags. But at the end of the day, it did not cost Gonzaga a game here. Nope. 
the, the officiating while frustrating. See Drew Timmy pick up a fourth foul that early in the second half. And I've seen people comment on how, you know, you don't see this happen in the NBA and superstars don't get these kind of calls and, and whatever, blah, blah, blah. You can litigate that all you want. You can have that conversation all you want. Did it suck that Drew Timmy had to sit this much in his final game in a Gonzaga uniform, we assume? Yeah, it did. But Gonzaga also could not hit the broad side of a barn in this one. UConn played exceptional. They, they executed their game plan. They used Adama Sanogo more as a facilitator. He wasn't the most efficient offensively that he's been, but he found open shooters. And then Jordan Hawkins, monster game from him, hit every shot that he could, Was found himself wide open a lot. UConn found a ways to exploit Gonzaga's, as we talked about coming into this game, questionable, to say the least, defense. That's, good, that's a kind word, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's the kindest word I'm going to come up with right now. Let's say that. Um, and Gonzaga's defensive rotations were just a step slow and, and utilizing Sonogo in a way where they got him the ball. They doubled, Gonzaga double teamed him. He found open players. Gonzaga's defensive rotations didn't get there in time. They got open looks. And Gonzaga got open looks too, but when they got open looks, they didn't put them down. UConn did. And as simple as that may sound, that was kind of the difference in this one. Yeah, and, and Andy for Gonzaga, who is the number one rated offense at Ken Palm, they score a season-low 54 points. The yeah. only time all season they were under 60 points. Like, they even scored more. Uh, I believe it was against Houston was the other low, the previous low this season. Am I thinking right? No, Baylor, excuse me, was, was the Baylor, previous yeah. uh, 63 points. But Yeah, I think they scored 66 against Kent State or something along those lines. Too. Uh, really 73 good. against Kent yeah. State, 66 against Purdue, yeah. 64 Michigan State. So, yeah. um, and then yeah, the Michigan this- State game doesn't count because that was played on a... <laughs> <laughs> on an aircraft that's, that's a fair point but andy how on earth did did yukon like just mix it up so much in such a way that that gonzaga just couldn't score and shot terribly frankly from three-point range like how did that happen I think, I mean, a lot of it was Gonzaga missing shots that they don't normally miss. Like, quite honestly, I I think that played a role. And that's not to diminish what UConn did at all. UConn played a very excellent defensive game. You do not hold the number one offense in the country to 22 second half points without playing good defense. They were aggressive. One of the big things that I saw from them is is a a lot of intentionality on the glass. Uh, Gonzaga got nine offensive rebounds, which is quite honestly more than I thought that they had from watching the game. Uh, but UConn, they won the battle of the boards. Uh, they forced Gonzaga to turn the basketball over. Uh, and when Gonzaga got looks, they were always in their face. And, you know, it was hard for them to get open looks. And when they did, they did not capitalize. And for UConn, they 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 ran their offense methodically. They found open shooters. Joey Calcaterra had a really nice game off the bench. You could tell that he wanted that as somebody who spent four years at the University of San Diego getting his butt whooped by the Zags. I'm sure <laughs> he was happy to be on the other end of that in that one. But uh as much as UConn, I mean, they have not even really played a close game yet in the NCAA tournament with their win over Arkansas again, the St. Mary's win, the Iona win. Like this team has barely even been tested and they're going to go into a game against either Texas or Miami uh, with as much momentum as anybody in the entire NCAA tournament. And, and I think Dan Hurley's squad has a really good chance of, we talked about this game being a potential like, not necessarily the national championship, but there was a lot of sentiment out there that whoever wins between Gonzaga and UConn is going to be the team that takes home the trophy. And UConn made it not even look like a competition 
which makes it hard to bet against them right now as they go into uh, the final four in the national championship. Yeah. I mean, they're going to be, I I can't find back the tweet. Just, I was scrolling through and I don't even remember who it was now, but basically said, look at all the coaches that, um, that, uh, excuse me, uh, Hurley has knocked off in the tournament here. And it's just insane. Starting with Rick Rick Pitino all the way through to Mark few here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just, what yeah. they're doing is is really next level, and and it just kind of like that play right before halftime when the the Jackson kind of kicked back out from the lane yeah. to Caravan for that three at yeah. the halftime at the first half buzzer was just like, I this might be UConn's night. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it just had that feeling at that point, and it, it was weird. You talked about Jordan Hawkins earlier. We had made so not just we, you and I, but like everyone had made such a big deal about the matchup inside between Adama mm-hmm. Sonogo and Drew Timmy. And let's not forget Donovan Kling. I mean, that dude is just going to be an absolute, I mean, is a beast and is going to continue to be a beast. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- they all just had fine games and yeah. it, it was Jordan Hawkins. That was really the absolute dude. And, and- I'll, I'll tell you this, Isaac, um, if I had told you before the game that Drew Timmy and Adama Sonogo are going to combine for 22 points, who would you have guessed would have won? Oh, the refs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I would have, <laughs> I would have easily said UConn. Or, yeah, me, you have to say UConn, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. That was the story of this game in a lot of ways. And if you all told me that Sonogo was four assists away from getting a triple double, I definitely would have thought that UConn was going to Yeah, I mean, it's just, it feels like Drew Timmy's elite offensive production is more Mm -hmm. necessary for Gonzaga than Adama Sonogo's for UConn. Exactly. And, and uh, that, that played out tonight where both guys were just right there, 10 and 12 Mm -hmm. and um, it went in UConn's favor. And so, um, that that's where we're at with it. And Andy, before we get out to, to the last thing I know, listen, you, we, we don't talk much about our, our other hosting responsibilities, but you, as someone that has covered Gonzaga for years and years now, uh, this really, to me, um, feels like the end of an era for Gonzaga. Um, as somebody that just loves college basketball and loves watching it, I, I was emotional watching Drew Timmy watch off the court for the last time wrap up coach few and they that was just a special moment i i said on something else we were talking about i don't mind admitting i had legitimate tears in my eyes and i saw my wife kind of have her her sleeve up to her eyes wiping it as well what as you saw those two men embrace what went through your head yeah just having seen this before uh you know it's so hard it's so heartbreaking to see especially a school like Gonzaga, where they they tend to have a lot more three-year, four-year, nowadays, five-year guys. Not always, obviously, you know, Chet Holmgren, Jalen Suggs, recent examples of guys who, who were not that. Uh, but Gonzaga has historically had so many kind of iconic figures who were three- or four-year guys, and none of their careers have ever ended with them holding a trophy up. Hmm. <laughs> none of them. Uh, Adam Morrison's did not, uh, you know, I think about guys like, you know, maybe lesser known nationally guys, but guys like Robert Sacre and Elias Harris and, you know, DeMontis Bonus was only a two-year guy, but Shema Karnowski is a great example uh, whose career unfortunately ended in the national yeah, championship yeah. game very close. Um, and look, Timmy is ahead of those guys. 
he is the figurehead. And I, I spoke about this recently on an episode of Locked on Sags. I wrote about this as well. Uh, Drew Timmy's legacy is unparalleled at Gonzaga. It will never be. I don't think anybody will ever be that. Multiple-time All-American, Elite Eight in two of the three seasons he went to the NCAA tournament, all-time leading scorer in school history, a record that has been that was set in the 50s, mind you. Every player that John Stockton was in the 80s, Mark Few didn't show up until 1999 as the head coach. Every player that has come through Gonzaga basketball, none of them touched Frank Burgess's record from the 1950s except Drew Timmy. And he didn't do it with an extra year. With no disrespect to Antoine Davis, who came very close to breaking Pete Maravich's record, who did it with an extra year. Drew Timmy did it in four. He did it in four years. An extraordinary, iconic career for him. It is devastating that this is how it ends. But as we've talked about before, Isaac, 352 teams end with a loss. You know, only one team gets to carry that trophy at the end of the year. I thought Drew Timmy had a great chance to be the guy to do it for Gonzaga. And unfortunately, unless he shocks us all, and comes <laughs> back, he said he's not planning to. He said that on his podcast, Gimme Timmy. He said that to other media people as well. But he could always change his mind. But if he doesn't, what an extraordinary career. Yeah. College basketball has certainly lost one of its true shining stars with Gonzaga's loss. And uh, we... Oh, dude, seriously, I'm getting emotional saying this. Like, uh, we we look ahead to who that will be in the coming years. And um, to Drew Timmy, I know you will never hear this, but thank you for being <laughs> such a great ambassador for our sport. We are grateful. Andy, we have punched two tickets for the Final Four. We got another two to punch today coming up. We will have two more coaches who have never won a national championship, yeah. just like Mr. Hurley, just like Mr. May. Boy, who's it going to be? We'll talk about it in just a second. All right, Andy, two more games on Sunday. First off, we got Creighton versus San Diego State. Both uh, both of Sunday's games, by the way, are CBS. We're switching from Turner to CBS. So 220 Eastern on CBS. FanDuel has it Creighton minus one and a half. And then the later game, Texas versus Miami. 5.05 Eastern on CBS in the Midwestern region from Kansas City. Texas favored by three and a half. That's the biggest of the four lines of the Elite Eight. You love how close all these lines are. And Andy, looking at it on paper, on Saturday, the nightcap was the more exciting game. Mm -hmm. But it was that FAU-Kansas State game that turned out to be better. And so on paper, looking at this, I'm more excited about Texas-Miami than I am Creighton-San Diego State. But we could very well have just as good, if not a better game from the Blue Jays and the Aztecs. Let's look at it. What are you looking at between Creighton and San Diego State? It's going to be a really fun matchup. Uh, I, I agree with you, Texas-Miami, so high-level guard play from both those teams. I think that's going to be extraordinary. I think there's a possibility that one of those two teams just kind of runs away with it the way that UConn did to Gonzaga. But I've, Creighton and, and San Diego State's going to be a rock fight. That's the way that San Diego State prefers to play. That might be an advantage to them. Uh, But I think this is going to be a really close game between two really good teams who play very different styles. San Diego State, you know, much has been made about their veteran experience. Uh, Matt Bradley's been around for a very, very long time. Lamont Butler's been there for a while. Darion Trammell, a guy who started his career at City College of San Francisco, transferred to Seattle U, then transferred to San Diego State. is basically the catalyst for them even advancing past Alabama and playing in this game. And I think we're looking at uh, uh, two teams that I think, again, they play kind of different styles, but it's really going to come down to the post. Mm. It's going to come down to a battle between Ryan Kalkbrenner 
the East Defensive Player of the Year, a guy who scored 20 points in at least two of their NCAA tournament games. He's been a machine down on the block. And Mensa for San Diego State, who had a monstrous game against Alabama, really showed that, like, hey, I know that I come from a, a Mountain West conference that maybe doesn't get a lot of respect and that we're going up against the big boys at Alabama, these big SEC guys. And he went out there and blocked, I think, five shots in that game. Something along those lines was, was an enforcer down low. And I think, you know, you, you look at the stats and Mensa's a guy who didn't put up huge numbers necessarily uh, in the in the regular season. I don't think he didn't play very many minutes, quite honestly, but uh, he's he's really showed up in the NCAA tournament. And I think if people look at this matchup between Ryan Kalkbrenner, Nathan Mensa, and think, uh, well, advantage Kalkbrenner, so we're going to give it to Brayton. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not, not that so fast. Good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I, Mensa's been playing really good basketball lately. If he steps up, if he frustrates Kalkbrenner, if he gets him out of his rhythm, that's a huge advantage for San Diego State. Having said that, Creighton could then turn to, I don't know, Baylor Shireman or <laughs> Trey Alexander or Ryan Nemhard. Like, they have weapons. They have options. But I think San Diego State is, is uniquely equipped to potentially slow them down. I think this is going to be a, a tough game for both teams. Well, in, in, a, in a very similar way to what San Diego State did to Alabama, like really took them out of their rhythm from a three-point yeah. shooting standpoint, could easily do the same to Baylor Shireman, right? And so, uh, man, no reason to think San Diego State couldn't keep doing more of this. But, uh, you know, Creighton, we've talked about that kind of redemption story of starting out top 10, having that six game losing streak and everything that um, uh, that Kalkbrenner went through with his injury and then and um, illness following that, but uh, should be, like you said, while it might not have the, the headlining uh, bright light shining on it, make sure you are dialed in mid afternoon for this one, get a little cup of coffee, tuck Mm -hmm. under a blanket and be ready to go for this one. And, And let's also remember, you've mentioned this several times on platforms where we've been hanging out lately, but Adam Seiko and yeah. Arthur Kaluma, who play for these two different teams, Seiko for San Diego State, Kaluma for Creighton, are actually brothers yeah. and will be squaring off um, against okay. each other. And, and we've pointed out, like, uh, most notably recent uh, time we can think of something like that happening is in the 2016 National Championship game between Chris Jenkins, he of the most famous shot in NCAA tournament history. Is yeah. that a bold statement? I don't know. One of the, at least, yeah. Yeah. against uh, his kind of – uh, adopted brother in Nate Britt who played for North Carolina. So Andy, then we move to the afternoon game in Kansas city. The one we talked about in the big storyline here, just like Marquise Noel's uh, ankle in uh, the New York game, which mm-hmm. he seemed to be fine, by the way, what a dude playing through that is Dylan DeSue, Texas mm-hmm. big man who up until the sweet 16 game, when he didn't play outside of uh, running up and down the court a couple of times to start mm-hmm. had been their best player for the Longhorns recently. Uh, we believe he most likely will not play again in this game. The The official thing that John Rothstein tweeted out from a Texas spokesman is this. Dylan DeSue's foot remains day-to-day, and his status for Sunday against Miami will, quote, probably not be determined until pregame warm-ups per a school spokesman. And so, Andy, this is just me, no kind of inside information or anything. I don't think Dylan DeSue's playing again. I think they were able to find enough of what they needed against Xavier on Friday night. They just blitzed uh, with Christian Bishop filling in very admirably, six of seven from the field. Uh, I, I think that combined with everything Texas is going to get from their deep stable of guards, who any of whom could just obliterate you on a given night, uh, will be what they need. Now, that said, 
how does that match up against Isaiah Wong and Nigel Pack and Jordan Miller and everything that Norchad O'Meara is going to do inside against Christian Bishop. So just like we said about that Houston game, I'm so excited for all these matchups. And so, boy, it will be a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I think um, I agree with you. I don't think Dylan DeSue is going to play in this game. I, I think that Texas is, is correctly playing the, you know, we will find out at the last possible second card because why would you not? Like if, I mean, unless it's very obvious he's not going to play, don't say anything. Make the decision at the last possible second. Don't let Miami get a sense of what you're going to do. But uh, DeSue, I mean, for Texas, like if they win this game, if they advance to the championship, if they, you know, play in the championship, potentially win it all, to start the NCAA tournament with Dylan DeSue putting up 23.5 points per game, 10 rebounds per game, to lose him in the middle of the NCAA tournament and just continue on, continue winning games is just ludicrous and again they still got some tough ones to get Miami this is gonna be a really really tough game but I think Norchad O'Meara is going to be the factor he's going to be the biggest factor mm-hmm. in the game because either Texas will have Dylan DeSue likely not at 100 percent or they will not have Dylan DeSue either way for Texas they're going to rely more on Christian Bishop like we said he was awesome against Xavier and a Xavier team that was missing Zach Fremantle they've been missing him for a while granted, but still didn't have as much punch in the front court as they typically do. He's great, but he's yes. not Fremantle. He's not that guy. Omir is more of a physical threat. Again, we've talked about him a lot on the show. He's, he's a little undersized, but he's a tenacious rebounder, really good low post score. And I think, I don't want to say the guards are going to cancel each other out because the guard play in this game is so unique and dynamic and just kind of Labeling it as, as that is, is a disservice to those players That's right. uh, because Nigel Pack and Isaiah Wong are, are so, so good. And the way that Miller's been playing lately for them. And then, of course, Marcus Carr, Tyrese Hunter, Serge Abari Rice. <laughs> it's just six and on and Jimmy. And, yeah. Six elite guards in this game. And I mean, it's just insane. But but to me, a lot of what's going to happen in this game is going to be determined by how Texas responds without DeSue, we assume, or with a banged up DeSue. Uh, and how Miami is able to use Norchad O'Meara uh, as a as a weapon on the offensive glass, as a weapon uh, in the low post, uh, a guy who could be really disruptive for the Longhorns, a team that relies a lot on their toughness and physicality and is going to be missing some of that if they don't have to sue. Andy, I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to let you get us out of here. When I look at what's remaining in the right side of the bracket with what UConn's doing, the way Texas has looked this whole tournament, and honestly what Miami's been doing and how they looked against Houston, with all due respect to FAU and San Diego State and Creighton, the de facto national championship game is the semifinal on the right side of the bracket next Saturday in the Final Four. And maybe that's a bit hot takey, but my goodness, I'm just calling it what I see, and what I see is the champion easily coming out of the right side of the bracket. Agreed. I think one of those three teams is going to win the national championship. Well, we're going to find out. Yes, we? we are. Isaac, we got so much more content coming your folks' way the rest of the week. We're not done. We're not done. we still got a couple more games to go. Uh, we're going to check you out after Sunday's games, of course. Five, five games left. Five games left. We're going to talk about every single dang one of them. And again, then guess what? We're going to talk to you all off-season long, transfer portal news, coaching carousel, interviews with coaches, interviews with players, discussion on the season, discussion on next season, all of that stuff coming your way. So do not leave us after the season here. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter if you don't already. Leave a review on iTunes, all of that good stuff. Locked on College Basketball five days a week. 
every week going forward. Isaac's so excited to watch these games on Sunday to get a look at what our final four is finally going to look like as we head into next week. For now, guys. Peace. Peace.